Nothing exposes trust like danger when there is good reason to be afraid and when you are truly not safe, at least in a physical sense. It's danger sometimes that exposes where your trust lies. Within the past couple of decades, there's uh, been a new sport that has uh, spread around the world called wingsuit flying. It's grown in popularity. Has anyone ever seen wingsuit flying? Okay, yeah. Who's done it? All right, RJ. Uh, Wingsuit flying. So it's a type of skydiving where the skydiver wears a webbed suit. It looks sort of like a flying squirrel with, a, with, with webbing that runs from, from hand to foot and from foot to foot. And, uh, and so you wear the web suit and you actually use that web suit to glide through the air uh, on your way down from some insane height. And, um, of course, then... You do have to deploy a parachute at the end <laughs> to, to land. So it's a new sport, but the history actually goes, uh, uh, goes back over 100 years, all the way back to uh, 1912 was when the first um, uh, wingsuit was, uh, was created. And that was in the early days of airplane uh, flight. And there was actually a tailor, uh, a tailor who designed clothing. His name was Franz Reichelt. And he invented the suit to help pilots. He's now known as the flying tailor because of this suit that he invented. And he invented it for safety reasons. He had heard all, all the stories of these early aviators in, in, uh, in airplane flight uh, dying because their airplanes malfunctioned in, in midair and they had to leave the uh, plane and, and they, they, they died. Uh, so he wanted to help them. The idea was that pilots could wear a, a suit, an aviation suit, but, uh, but one um, that had wings designed similarly to a parachute, sort of halfway between wings and, uh, and, and a parachute. Uh, and if the airplane went down, then instead of falling, the pilot could leave the airplane and, and just use this suit to kind of glide uh, to the ground. So Reichelt spent almost two years perfecting the design and, uh, and it, it became quite the stir. And people came from all around. They brought cameras and news, um, um, news crews and, uh, uh, to look. And, and the test was in uh, Paris. Uh, people came from all around to see a big crowd, uh, cameras rolling. And uh, so Reichelt climbed to the top of the Eiffel Tower wearing the suit with his parachute wings. And he jumped. Uh, now, there's nothing safe, typically, not typically, there's nothing ever safe about jumping from the top of the Eiffel Tower. <coughs> if you think you can do that safely, I've got news for you. You can't. It's not safe. There's nothing safe about jumping from the Eiffel Tower. There are safer ways than others, uh, but it's not safe. Uh, but Reichelt trusted in his design more than he feared the danger. And he fell to his death. His trust was misplaced. 
Today, athletes around the world leap and glide from the edge of cliffs, and then they deploy reliable parachutes, and they land unharmed. They jump because they trust that at the crucial moment, the parachute will deploy and bring them safely alive uh, to solid ground. The trust is revealed the moment when they jump, and they put their life on the line. When their very lives depend on whether that parachute proves worthy or unworthy, of their trust. Christians, you are called to put your very lives in the hands of God. You are called to trust him even with your life and even unto death. He is worthy. God is worthy of that kind of radical and absolute trust. He is worthy of the kind of trust leads you to put your life on the line when it means risking your life and in fact when it means death he is worthy of that kind of trust this morning in psalm 119 105 through 112 we will learn to see god's word not only as a helpful guide but as a lifeline as the only lifeline that we will follow even when our lives in the balance. It begins with these words. They're very familiar to you. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. The lamp to my feet and the light to my path it implies darkness. You need a lamp for your feet, you need a light. For your path, when it's dark, that's when you need the lamp, when it's dark. So it implies darkness is all around. On a dark night, the lamp that lights your way serves more than one purpose. Certainly the light on your path shows you the way. It it gives you direction. The light also keeps you safe from danger. The verse then speaks of God's word as both safety and direction. The use of God's word to provide direction as a light to our path. It's a theme that recurs throughout Psalm 119. We've seen it, um, that theme, um, in many other of the the stanzas we've already looked at in Psalm 119. And of course, God's word serves that purpose. All of Psalm 119 is a song that's filled with stanza after stanza meditating and praising God for his word. As the famous words of the Westminster Shorter Catechism teach, the word of God, which is contained in the scriptures of the Old and New Testaments, is the only rule to direct us how we may glorify and enjoy him. When you are walking that pathway into darkness, the light reveals the direction of the path ahead. It shows you which way to go. When you are uncertain of your direction in life, The word of God is sufficient and complete to guide you and to direct you. We've already contemplated the authority and the sufficiency of God's word in other stanzas of Psalm 119. But here we are dealing not just with a path, but with a path 
in the darkness. And God's word is not only a light to my path, it is also a lamp to my feet. I don't know what that was. In darkness, the lamp to my feet is a source of safety, isn't it? There's a reason why children don't like the dark. Uh, kids, any, anyone here sleep in pitch black? You're a kid? Abby and Bella do. And you, kid, raise your hand if you're a kid and you like to have uh, a light on in your room. Yeah, so there's a reason why kids prefer to have a nightlight, isn't there? Because you want to see. It's kind of, sometimes it's, uh, it, it, it might make you feel nervous not to be able to see. Why? It's natural. In pure darkness, you cannot see the danger. You cannot see whether there's danger. You cannot see where the danger might come from. It, it can make you feel helpless, can't it? When you're on a journey, it's bad enough that in the darkness you might wander from the path and end up uh, in the wrong place. That's, that's bad enough, right? But far worse, if you cannot see your feet, you might trip. You might fall. You might stumble into something. Have you ever had that happen in your own house? Uh, the lights are off and you forget that you just rearrange the furniture. <laughs> um, or you think you know where you are until the corner of the wall informs you that your judgment was off by three feet. <laughs> of course, it's worse if you're uh, out in truly unknown territory, isn't it? There could be rocks, trees, holes in the ground. Or without a lamp to your feet, you could step off the edge of a cliff and on a day when you didn't think to wear your wingsuit. The point here is that the, la the lamp to your feet allows you to step surely and safely even in the midst of uh, dangerous hazards. Uh, in fact, that, um, that, that rock that you might trip on, that little hole, uh, it's dangerous in the dark, not dangerous at all once you have the lamp to your feet. Verse 106 then tells us something about what this means for the kind of trust that we have in the word of God. It says, I have sworn an oath and confirmed it to keep your righteous rules. The psalmist is taking an oath. More than just a decision in the moment uh, or a determination, it's also a solemn pledge that the psalmist his determination to follow the word will not be altered. You see, it's one thing to make a decision today based on the information that I have today, and that may change tomorrow. An oath is deeper than that. An oath means it's not going to change. No matter what else happens, I will hold to this. An oath means nothing if it doesn't mean that. An oath means I will hold to this no matter what. So the oath is a commitment to follow God's word unconditionally. It's more than a resolution to follow it here and now or as long as it makes sense to me. The oath is binding and it's binding forever. To take an oath requires a willingness to be bound. And the act of taking that oath means you will follow through. To commit yourself ahead of time that you will hold to that commitment come what may. That's an oath. 
You don't take an oath to do what you'll always want to do anyway. It's a meaningless oath, isn't it? You take an oath because you know there might be a time when you are tempted to go a different way. The oath binds you in those times when you might want to go a different way. You might wonder, why is the psalmist taking an oath? Is that right? Should we take oaths? Well, we know from throughout scripture that the psalmist um, has no power in himself to keep the oath. So why is he taking an oath if he doesn't have the power in himself to keep it? Yet we do see God's people taking oaths in scripture in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. And we see instructions uh, concerning how we are to take oaths, uh, telling us that when we do take oaths, it must only be in the name of God, for example. Certainly, as our confession says in chapter 23 in section 2, to swear an empty or ill-advised oath by the glorious and awe-inspiring name of God, it is sinful and it is to be abhorred. If we do take an oath, it should never be rash. And it should never be an oath in the flesh. And that is key. It should never be an, an oath that is reliant upon our own power, the exercise of our own effort and will. Rather, it should be, the oath should be an act of offering ourselves up to God in faith, looking not to what we can do of ourselves, but looking to the grace of God to supply uh, the strength that we need, to supply the obedient hearts that we require, to supply the grace and the mercy for us to follow him in faithfulness. Um, a Christian oath ought to be totally reliant upon God. The attitude is similar to an attitude that's expressed by Paul in 2 Corinthians 3, verse 4 and 5, where he he was speaking of the confidence that his own conduct and the conduct of the Corinthian church would be a letter of recommendation, proving the power of the gospel. He wrote, such is the confidence that we have through Christ toward God. Not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything as coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God. A promise or an oath to follow God on that basis is not rash. It is built on the promise of God in anticipation that in his faithfulness he will supply the obedience that his word requires. The next four verses take up the central message of the stanza. <clears throat> Verse 107 through 110. The psalmist is committed with an unbreakable unconditional oath before God to follow God's law even to the point of life and death. And that's what we see in these verses. Verse 107 says, I am severely afflicted. Give me life, O Lord, according to your word. The psalmist's affliction is a matter of life and death. He is severely afflicted to the point that his life is on the line. Now, in those circumstances, he could be looking for life and hope in other places, but his trust would be misplaced if he did so. He would be like the old flying tailor, old Franz Reichelt, trusting in a wingsuit designed to save him, but it only leads to death. 
The psalmist looks instead to the word as the only lifeline that is worthy of his trust. Verse 108 says, accept my free will offerings of praise, O Lord, and teach me your rules. This entire verse is a prayer of utter and absolute dependence upon God. It follows a single, it follows as a single unbroken prayer. It's not two separate thoughts, it's one thought here. He turns to God to supply knowledge, obedience, and praise according to the word. When the psalmist prays that God will accept his free will offerings of praise, his prayer shows that he understands that there is nothing of merit in any sacrifices that he can offer to God. He has to ask God to accept those offerings. If they had worth, if his works had worth in themselves, then God would be bound to accept it as a righteous God. So his prayer asking God please accept my offerings, is a prayer that recognizes that he depends on God's grace. If God accepts those offerings, it is by grace. It's all by grace that God teaches our, um, that God teaches the heart to follow him according to the word. It's grace. That God supplies obedience and praise is by grace. That God accepts the praise of his people in worship by grace. And so there's no questioning the the psalmist's intentions when he enters into the oath that he entered before God. (coughs) He trusts in God to teach his rules, God to produce obedience, and God to produce the praise that will flow from his lips, and God to accept the sacrifices of praise according to his mercy and his grace. The stakes are high, and it is a matter of life and death, but the psalmist places himself completely in God's hands. And verse 109 says, I hold my life in my hand continually, but I do not forget your law. The first clause in this verse, I hold my life in my hand continually, means that the psalmist knows that his decision is a life and death decision. He is severely afflicted in verse 107, and here in verse 109, he is aware that his actions may very well dictate whether he lives or dies. You all placed your life in your hand um, when you came here today. Did you know that? That's not because of me. Uh, It's because you all got into those uh, big metal death machines propelled by explosions of gasoline at speeds that put you in imminent mortal risk. You all did that this morning, didn't you? You put your life in your hands. Most, if not all of you, have also flown in airplanes at fatal, uh, ridiculous altitudes where the only line between your life and your death is your trust that the airplane will not fail and will not fall. You might say you take those risks because uh, they're small. Well, no, they're actually not small. They're big risks. It's just, it might be the case that the odds of, uh, of, of them going against you are, are, are small, but the risks themselves 
it's a huge risk. But you might say you take it because, uh, because it's unlikely that, uh, that things will go badly. And you take precautions to minimize those risks. You wear a seatbelt. You keep your eyes on the road. Uh, and it's true, the last major airline crash in the United States was uh, more than 10 years ago. Uh, I think 13, 14 years ago now. And you might say the technology is a little more reliable than it was for the flying tailor. Um, it's reliable enough that it's worth trusting. And you'd, frankly, almost certainly be right. Yes, there are crashes, but despite the occasional accident, as serious as those are, when they do happen, cars and airplanes are by and large safe and reliable. Um, they might fail, but serious deadly failures are relatively rare. God's word never fails. You take your life in your hand on the basis of your trust in a car that might sometimes fail to your death. You do. Will you take your life in your hand on the basis of your trust in the word of God that never fails? You trust the car. Do you trust God's word with your life? It's hard enough to trust the word when it's uncomfortable or when it might not give you what you feel that you want. That's hard enough. What about in those times when it is clear that your obedience to God's word not only might have a cost, but will have a cost? And what if that cost is severe and perilous? Verse 110 says, The wicked have laid a snare for me, but I do not stray from your precepts. You know what a snare is? Anyone know what a snare is? Some of you might be hearing uh, the voice of Admiral Akbar warning, it's a trap. <laughs> now, the wicked are happy to lay snares, aren't they? Nothing pleases them more than to make certain that you are punished for your obedience to the word. Actually, one thing does please them more, that you abandon your commitment to obey the word of the Lord. And so certainly the wicked love to lay snares. The psalmist knows that the wicked have laid a snare for him. Not just that they might or that they will want to if they can. The psalmist says the wicked have laid a snare for me. He knows it has happened. He knows the situation that, it is, that he's in and it is perilous and it is a trap. Yet he is willing to walk right into the trap with his life in his hand, trusting in the Lord, whether it means his life or even unto his death. If that trap is his death, he is willing to walk into it for the sake of the word of the Lord. The best illustrations of scripture are often found in scripture. And I cannot think of a better uh, or more elegant illustration of this kind of trust than Daniel chapter 3. Three young Jewish men who had been taken from their homes to live as exiles in Babylon. 
They were given the names Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They knew absolutely that they took their lives in their hands when they obeyed the law of God over the law of Nebuchadnezzar that commanded them to bow before the golden image of the king. They knew they were taking their life into their hands by refusing to bow. And they did not bow. Now, in a moment, you might have thought, uh, sure, they knew there was a risk, but maybe they won't be caught. Maybe nobody will notice. Maybe God will deliver them. But God didn't deliver them from that. They were caught. The worst did come to pass. They were caught. Now, in the moment, you might have thought, well, sure, there was a risk, but maybe they won't be punished. Maybe someone will let them off the hook. They had proven their worth in Babylon already. Maybe God would deliver them and there wouldn't be a punishment imposed. God did not deliver them in that way. The worst did come to pass again. And they were told in no uncertain terms, bow or burn. Nebuchadnezzar told them that if they did not bow, they would immediately go to the furnace. They took their lives in their hands and they did not bow. Nebuchadnezzar said, and who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? The young men answered, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace. And he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. They knew it was life or it was death. And if obedience to the word meant they were delivered from death in this life, so be it. Praise God. But if obedience meant their death, they were willing to take their lives into their hands and place themselves into the hands of God. Now, at that point, if they thought they might die, they had good reason to think so. In fact, we know they thought so. But they trusted God more than they feared the fire. And their trust was not misplaced. They were bound and thrown into the fire. And the king looked into the furnace and saw four, not three, but four men unburned and unbound. Trust in the word of the Lord unto life or unto death is never, never, never misplaced. The word never fails. Verses 111 and 112 say, Your testimonies are my heritage forever, for they are the joy of my heart. I incline my heart to perform your statutes forever to the end. To the end <clears throat> means unto death. As I read these words to close the psalm, uh, I am drawn to the word incline. Now, uh, that language, it's, it's analogical language. It's, 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 it's picture language. Incline just means to lean. It, it's, so it's a picture. We know that, that it means, uh, what it means, it, it knows, uh, we know that it means that you're uh, 
determining to do something or, uh, or you're tending to do something, but it's, a, it's picture language. It's leaning. Uh, and I think sometimes with language like that, it, uh, it, it's, it's helpful you know, for us. Some of the translations of this verse use, um, uh, abandon the, the, the picture uh, language, abandon the analogy, and use uh, more direct um, uh, words like determined, resolved, or set. But overwhelmingly, this verse is, um, is translated as inclined. The Hebrew word has a very similar meaning to our word incline. Uh, so it makes sense that, the, that incline would be the most common translation. The Hebrew word means to bend, to stretch, to turn, or to lean. Now what do you do when you're in danger? In a moment when you know there's danger. What does a child do when a child suddenly becomes afraid? She grabs on to her mom or her dad, and she holds tight. That's the most solid thing in that child's life, isn't it? When there's an earthquake, what happens? What do people do when there's, a, when there's an earthquake? Or, um, you, you, you find the wall. You find something solid, and you lean against it, don't you? You lean in the direction that's safest, so that if you lose your balance, if you fall, you fall into safety. Instead of danger, there is no safer place to fall than into the arms of God. Verse 111 says his testimonies are a heritage forever. What does that mean? Is that talking about um, your, your word is a, is, is a nice trinket that we can pass down to our kids. They can pass it down to theirs and, and we'll have sentimental uh, value. No, it's not talking about that. But the word heritage means inheritance it is referring to something that you will inherit the word heritage means that the testimonies of God are an inheritance it represents the promises of God so when the psalmist says that the word of God is a heritage, he's not referring to the book with paper pages. He's referring to what the book promises. And the inheritance that is promised by these words and testimonies of God. And these promises and the inheritance that God has promised according to his testimonies, they are forever. The promises are forever. The inheritance is forever. It means that God's word has given you promises that are yours forever. There's every reason to take those testimonies as a joy. And there's every reason to trust them. There's only one reason why we can claim an inheritance from God. You can only claim an inheritance if you are an heir, a son or a daughter. The only true and worthy heir of God is Jesus, the Christ, the Son of God. The inheritance 
the heritage, the only inheritance that's worth anything is his. It belongs to him. Yet the words of the psalmist are that God's testimonies are my heritage. The only reason why he can say this is because he belongs to God. Because his faith is in God. Because he trusts in God for his salvation. He trusts in the promise of God. And God promises that I will be your God. You will be my people. The Apostle Paul wrote in Philippians chapter 3 concerning his hope for that same eternal forever heritage and the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. The heritage is mine because I am his. The heritage belongs to Christ. He purchased it with his perfect life and his sinless death, and he proved its worth in his resurrection. It is his. It belongs to Christ. And it becomes yours if you belong to Christ, if your faith is in him alone. And if so, then the testimonies of God are indeed the joy of your heart, because in those testimonies, in his word, you have found an inheritance in Christ that is eternal, that is forever. And that promise holds firm even when everything in this world falls and crumbles to dust. Parachutes, planes, cars, all of these things fail and they fall. But the promises of God will never fail. The word of the Lord that saves you from sin is also worthy of your trust in life and even unto death. Trust him. He is worthy and his word will never fail. Let's pray.